Welcome to the New Wild Review, Volume 2, Episode 1, Skunk's Got White Stripes. In this edition of New Wild Review, we uh, take a look at post-release studies and why they might be problematic for wildlife rehabilitators, and we also... Um, remind ourselves that uh, this is the time of year when skunks are on the move um, looking for a mate and looking for a place to raise their babies. We'll talk about that too. So, um, uh, here we go. Another edition. New Wild Review. Starting now. treat injured wildlife, it's only natural to want to know what happens to our patients after they are released. In many ways, we can't know how effectively we are doing our work without knowing how well our patients do post-treatment. When your patient is wild, you can't release them until you're reasonably sure of their survival, all things being equal. In other words, as far as we can tell, they have the same chance at making it as any other healthy individual. And we can't schedule checkups. As wildlife rehabilitators, obviously our most pressing allegiance is to each patient. Our right to hold them captive, if we have it at all, is built on our promise of relief from suffering, either through recovery or mercy. What drives our allegiance, of course, is a greater allegiance still, and that is to the rights of Mother Earth. In this work, we do not try to rewrite the laws of nature to suit our passing views on how the world ought to be. We side with the wild. We see to their needs. No matter what our creed might be, in the end, as caregivers, we cannot take a religious view that man or humanity is at the top of creation. The science is clear. We are beings among beings in a world none made and over which none can truly claim title or crown. So we proceed then, but cautiously, and always aware that at no point in the act of tending to an injured or orphaned wild animal have they given their consent. Under this condition, everything we do with each orphaned robin or beached petrel has to be in each one's best interest, or else our possession of them loses legitimacy, like an unpropelled helicopter loses altitude.
laboratories, academies, and other institutions with animals held for education or research purposes routinely establish a review of their practices through what is known as an Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. Often people just say IACUC. And these committees are intended to ensure that animal welfare concerns are being met. Such a committee for our work as care providers to wild patients isn't sufficient. With the noted absence of consent, our patients have rights more akin to a hospital patient, as any of us would understand, but which are also available with a quick Google search. You can just Google search under, uh, you know, Patients' Bill of Rights. I say all of this as background to why we proceed very slowly on post-release study of our patients. At Humboldt Wildlife Care Center and in our work at the Lower Klamath Refuge Botulism Response, our patients are often given a federal ban. Under various permits held by others, I've personally put hundreds, if not thousands, of bans on birds over the last 19 years after I got my first job at International Bird Rescue Research Center in Los Angeles, which, by the way, now known as IBR. Um, uh, previously, I'd only worked at the Progressive Animal Welfare Society, PAWS, in Seattle. And PAWS, you know, their policies were tended to err on the side of patient autonomy, and we just didn't do things to patients that was against their will and, you know, that they had no choice over that wasn't about their own well-being. Um, so we didn't ban birds. And going from that environment and worldview to putting bans on birds was not the easiest transition, but I made it, and largely because I couldn't stop the practice from happening, so I decided to become good at it and be always certain that nothing would go wrong during the banding process and that the band and the, or the ring fit well and that nothing sharp or uncomfortable would be left behind. I mean, well, what else is there anyway? And while we banded common MERS caught in the oil that kept seeping up from the SS Jacob Luckenbach, which sank in 1953 off the coast of San Mateo County, had been oiling seabirds every winter storm since in what was called the San Mateo Mystery Spill, until it was finally identified and cleaned up in the early aughts of this century, I'd mention something about the invasiveness of the permanent band and hear horror stories come back to me about various post-release studies gone awry such as backpacks of radio telemetry gear tangling the wings of the brown pelicans they'd been strapped to, killing them. Pelicans who'd been rehabilitated after being caught in the 1990 oil spill in Huntington Beach when the American trader punctured its hull with its own anchor. Banding seemed pretty mild, comparatively. Those pelicans, though, lost their freedom the moment they hit that oil and the ones who got those backpacks and died from them never regained it. Insult and further injury, injury unto death that is, were added to injury. No suffering was eased. So it was a rehabilitation failure. Failures happen. We make mistakes. We learn from mistakes. We move on. I continued to ban birds in oil spills and in day-to-day -day aquatic bird rehabilitation as long as I worked for IBR and even here in Humboldt when releasing the brown pelicans caught in the fish waste problems up and down the coast. While working in the Bay Area though, I was on the response team for the oil spill in San Francisco Bay when the Costco Busan hit the bridge in heavy fog, November 2007. 
Nearly 1,500 living victims of the spill were brought into care. Surf scoters, greater and lesser scob, western grebes, American coots, common loons, buffalo head, hooded mergansers, common golden eye. In other words, exactly who you might find wintering on San Francisco Bay in November. We washed 800 birds in 11 days with an incredible team of volunteers. One of the reasons you stop washing birds in an oil spill is because crews in the field stop bringing them in. There's an intimate relationship between those two activities. In an oil spill, there are mere days, 10 to 14, before you realize that you've gotten all of the birds that you can. All the others have died. In some way, the birds most heavily oiled have a better chance, actually debilitated beyond any ability to function while their health is good, they are in a better shape by parameters such as anemia and body condition to withstand the stress of captive care, and they emerge from the cleaning process closer to being able to be released. Those birds who were able to evade capture long enough for the oil to have begun causing its secondary wounds, such as internal burns from ingesting the oil in an attempt to remove it themselves, as well as the need to preen, interfering with normal foraging activities, as well as the need to spend less time in the cold water due to now chronic waterproofing problems, these birds require more intensive supportive care to make it through the rehabilitation process, but many do. And in caring for large numbers of these birds especially, the field of aquatic bird rehabilitation has gained most of its body of knowledge. On-the-job efforts to treat birds you think you can help get back to the world is the true school of the wildlife rehabilitator. You learn to provide better care for the next patient by trying to provide the best you can for this one. It's no mistake that it's called a practice just as you learn your instrument every time you play it. As the Costco-Busan spill drew to a close, I was asked to stay and help provide husbandry care for a group of surf scoters who had been chosen for a post-release study. As it turns out, 20 scoters who had been oiled in the spill were now going to have transmitters about the size of a matchbox surgically implanted in their abdominal cavities, and antenna would also emerge through an incision in their back. Moreover, another 20 scoters in the wild would be captured and brought to the facility and treated as if they had been oil spill victims, also receiving a radio in the gut. Yet another group of 20, the control, would be captured, have the telemetry device surgery, held a couple of hours, and then returned to the bay. I never saw those birds. Out of the 40 non-injured birds in the study, about 13 died before the study was over. Would they have died anyway? Well, it's hard to say. The winter after the spill had been tough on aquatic birds in San Francisco Bay. At IBR, we saw an unusually high number of patients who seemed to be suffering from nothing more than starvation. The worst of it is the oiled birds who we intentionally injured while they were in our care. 
the mortality in the 20 oiled birds post-release was higher than the other two groups. 15 of the 20 made it to release post-radio implant surgery, and of those, 15, five survived until the waning days of survey flights in early spring. But the numbers don't matter. The lessons learned from the study are nearly insignificant due to many variables that are difficult to account for, though even if they were, the numbers are still gotten through means that can't be justified as a caregiver. Those oiled scoters had already survived being caught in an oil spill. The fact that they were among the last patients in care shows that they had been the longest impacted, released over a month after the spill. Who knows how they would have fared post-release had they not been subjected to two intense injuries, oiling and surgery. When we put those birds into surgery instead of releasing them, we ceased to be care providers and we broke the contract, shabby though it may be, that allowed us to hold them against their will in the first place. It was soon after this that I heard about snowy plovers who had been losing legs to band injuries in a study on the coast. The plovers had been banded with a federal band as well as multiple color-coded plastic leg bands so that individuals could be identified in the field. It turned out that sand could be impacted under the band against the plover's leg, shutting off blood flow to their feet. It didn't take long for the foot to die, and then of course the bird. As a wildlife rehabilitator, what that story means to me is that there is a limit to banding. We have and we will again partner with an agency to rescue and release birds that will include federally banding them. Personally, I am ambivalent about the practice. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that it's gratifying as well as hurtful to learn that the mallard you raised as an orphan in Los Angeles survived to be hunted and killed in the wilds of Alberta. The end is a sad one, of course but to know that a young duck really did get a second chance is knowledge that doesn't hurt to have. And um, next up we have it's a uh, piece from our Bird LIX blog that is titled Skunk's Got a White Stripe. And, um, yeah, it's still true today. So, uh, without any further ado, we'll just launch right into it. Every year, the same thrilling tale that nature has told since time immemorial ends in tragedy for many female skunks. In January, here in Humboldt, as late as the end of February for less temperate areas, female skunks begin to look for a mate. Their evenings are no longer spent watching over any remaining youngsters from the previous year, no longer content to saunter the nighttime world looking for food and whatever sparks her curiosity. Now she is driven. The force of spring renewal is a powerful thing, sending her across fields and forests and very unfortunately across roads too. 
Three days ago, we admitted our first adult female skunk of the year, who'd likely been hit by a car. Paralyzed and barely conscious, a quick humane end was the only appropriate care. We rarely admit a skunk who's been hit by a car simply because they rarely live through the impact. Instead, each January, we see a sudden increase in skunks dead and left to rot by the sides of our roads, from US 101 to the small two-lane blacktops that crisscross the agricultural industry of the bottomlands, Samoa Boulevard from Arcata through Manila and south to North Jetty, on these mild midwinter days might have as many as four skunks freshly killed to be seen on the morning commute. Accidents happen. Many of us can tell a story of hitting a bird or a squirrel or a raccoon without warning, with no chance to avoid the impact. It's a terrible thing, the finality of it. And in the moment, the realized cost. This Swainson's thrush had crossed thousands of miles to be here to raise this year's young. But no, instead, he's lodged in the bumper of a car that had been speeding along with coffee creamer and a few other things that had been needed at the store. The casual slaughter of billions of wild animals each year by automobile is just another tragedy woven through the fabric of our daily lives. In the last 12 months, how many raccoons between Arcata and Manila, between Ferndale and Fernbridge, between Bayside and Freshwater, between Redding and Sacramento, were struck and killed and left to bloat and decay by the side of the road, or worse, lure another animal, a turkey vulture perhaps, into the same trap? It's a measure of how far below our concern these lives are that we can tolerate their dead bodies lying on the margins of our thoroughfares decomposing where they were killed. It must be the case that many animals are killed simply because we don't see them, because we never see them. We don't include them in our ideas about what might happen. We race through the dark as if the world was closed and nothing is real but the road, our headlights, our thoughts, and the dark cavern of the sky. And the roadrunner, startled by our engine's roar, dashes from the sage into our trajectory, smashed in the night by the predator who never eats, to be mourned, if at all, only in the form of young who may have been orphaned to die, and the great sorrow of the earth, which is too large to hear. The earth who reels in the blood of her freshest wounds and heals as she can from wounds long inflicted, strip mines, fractured trawlers, pesticides sprayed across the plains, rivers choked. There are so many wounds in the world today. Mudslides have killed at least 18 people in Santa Barbara County. In California alone, people in the last year have suffered one catastrophic calamity after another. In a world where great disaster seems to always loom on the near horizon, it seems that there is a little we can do about these wounds on this scale. But it's simply not true. But it's simply not true. Against these tragedies, we have a remedy. This remedy may not lower the temperature, but will make the world where we are more beautiful, more just. Dr. King said that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, and we can do part of that bending right here, right now, in our tangible world and literally where the rubber meets the road. We can slow down and open our eyes. We can anticipate that we are not alone, free to tread where we will, to pay no regard to who is left broken or killed in our wake.
We can find the joy in the nocturnal wild and search for their glowing eyes. We can stop teaching our sons violence as a form of play, violence as a rite of passage, to respect the other lives, minds, hearts they encounter. Far too many patients we've admitted were witnessed being run down intentionally, almost always a young man at the wheel. We can teach our sons now what it means to value the soul of another. The world is made in moments, and in each moment we can remember our first loyalty to earth and the wild. We can learn to undo our overly built confidence in the machinery of our times and realign with our wild neighbors, our fellow travelers through this life on earth. The world is made in moments, and in each moment we can remember our first loyalty to earth and the wild. We can learn to undo our overly built confidence in the machinery of our times and realign with our wild neighbors, our fellow travelers through this life on earth, our kith, our kin. Our measured distance, surmountable in a leap of recognition, not faith. We can give safe passage to the skunk here now who is crossing the road so that she may find who she needs, so that the world is refreshed, so that her young come to be. Listening to New Wild Review. This was Volume 2, Episode 1, Skunk's Got White Stripes. New Wild Review is a project of Bird IX, and this episode was produced and uh, written and, you know, uh, yacked at you by me, Monty Merrick. And uh, soon coming up, we will be having uh, an issue of New Wild Review that will feature a uh, roundtable discussion on humane solutions just in time for baby season. See you then.